going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Console to RX podcast. I know it's been a minute, but we're back. Cole's been slacking. It's definitely not my fault. I have, yeah. Just never available. <laughs> never available it's for good a to podcast. Be, good to be back, though. It is. I feel like we haven't done this in forever. Yeah, it's, it feels like home in here. Basically. <laughs> it, it is my home, so I guess that's why I feel like that. live out of here. I do. Monsters in the fridge. Mm-hmm. Where's the fridge? I moved it. It was too bulky. Oh. Hmm. Didn't even notice. And I never actually went in there to get anything, so <laughs> I just more inconvenience. For, for looks. Yeah. It was for the guests, and exactly. I never really partook. Hmm. Lost opportunity. Haven't had one in a while, though. No, we need to. We got a couple uh, that I have hopefully lined up coming soon. We've just been off our A game with getting these things out. Yeah, we might uh, get a guest appearance for my brother again when yes. he's in town. That'd be good. good. Something about bones. I'm not even sure, but he's excited I'm to sure. talk about it. He wants to do it, though, so there we it's probably go. good. Yeah, I'm sure. Seems like a smart guy. Yeah, generally. Generally. <laughs> so uh, today, we are going to revisit dyslipidemia so we went over the new lipid guidelines uh on episode 40 something something Mm -hmm. and uh i think it was back in november and we kind of reviewed the old the new guidelines the new uh, american heart association um, guidelines for dyslipidemia however we're going to kind of go back to that today and uh, maybe touch on a couple new studies that have also come out but we're just going to uh kind of get a, a little bit more in depth with some of the recommendations and whatnot just because i feel like it's important something that um, a lot of people have asked about too. So yeah, that episode was titled "Numbers Are Back, Baby." Was it? No, but it should oh. have been. That was the title of my uh, of my presentation I did for Dr. Wart's um, conference. Wait, seriously? Uh, it was uh, it was um, num- uh, number or goal LDL goal strike back, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. <laughs> a little Star Wars reference. Nobody left. Know. Whatever. <laughs> it's before their time. Well. Or after. Well, probably not. I feel like I was the youngest one in there. So um, we're going to kind of, we'll go through some real brief pathophys, and then we're just going to kind of go through the different groups that the newest guidelines kind of focus on, because we had like our four statin groups before, um, but now they've kind of broken it up to not just statins, but they kind of push it a little bit further as far as follow-up and secondary and third-line treatments, things like that. So we'll touch on that and get a little bit more in depth, because there has been some changes since the last time we did this. Yes, there has been. So, do uh, you want to start off with anything in particular, or do you want to just jump in right, right into it? Got no history of, um, of dyslipidemia, except that we're just pretty sure that it's that cholesterol's bad. It's some, some people have gone back and forth on it, but it's, it's just bad. It's not good. There you go. So, I guess the real thing is, you know, why is high, and it's not just cholesterol in general, um, specifically speaking, it's going to be our LDL, our low-density lipoprotein. Um, there's, and we, I guess we should touch on some terminology, but there are different um, classifications. So, LDL um, is going to be responsible to primarily for carrying, like, cholesterol esters, um, as well as apolipoproteins, um, and specifically apolipoproteins B100, uh, which has been another marker that has showed potential for cardiovascular risk later on. Um, There's also, like, VLDL, which is very low-density lipoproteins. Um, Those are going to be primarily responsible for transporting triglycerides. Um, And then our high-density lipoprotein, or HDL, is going to be more of our 
um, what we call like a good cholesterol. And so we would want to see those numbers go up. We'd want to see our LDL kind of go down. And, you know, the other term you may kind of see in some of the literature is chylomicrons, which is going to be basically like the large particles that are responsible for carrying like dietary lipids. So they're going to kind of be the main um, vessel that kind of gets broken down into some of these other components and things like that as it gets absorbed. Yeah, in school I was taught to remember that LDL was bad because um, you would think lousy, lousy density lipoprotein, mm. very lousy. Thought it was dumb, but I've always remembered it. So. There you go. Never forgot. And nothing nothing good for HDL. I'll say, I'll say uh, happy density. H for happy. <laughs> you learned it here, folks. <laughs> Actually, I'm pretty sure I mentioned that in the... Uh, the other lip podcast don't sell yourself short well not the we happy. have no I, way of knowing i just made up the happy so it's trademark in progress okay well there you go yeah i'm sure we'll have that paperwork in no time <laughs> so you know, why is this elevated uh cholesterol this ele- elevated ldl harmful um and you know it's because it's not just that by itself but the main thing that we're focusing on is atherosclerosis which is basically this you know chronic inflammatory process um that works as a combination of, you know, plaque buildup and whatnot. Um, but any sort of condition that causes long-term inflammation. So, you know, hypertension, that's uncontrolled, a lot of visceral fat, um, certain infections that go on for a long period of time, smoking, um, hyperglycemia. So someone with uncontrolled diabetes, that's why we always consider them at higher risk for cardiovascular events. So when you combine anything like that, that can cause systemic inflammation and specifically in the vasculature and whatnot, uh, dyslipidemia in combination of that seems to be, um, the kind of catalyst for forming this atherosclerosis, this plaque buildup in the, in the arteries. And that's where we, we run into cardiovascular issues yeah. and, and a whole host of issues and obesity as well. I don't know if you mentioned mm. it, but that it's, smoking is widely considered to be the most significant risk factor, which is why when you're able to stop smoking, your risk reduces so significantly. Yeah. So, you know, how does LDL kind of, you know, cause some of this inflammation on its own, you know, terms. So LDL has, um, when it's, when it's, in front of some sort of inflammatory process, it becomes its oxidized form. Um, and its oxidized form is going to basically uh, activate monocytes, which are going to invade the uh, intima, uh, where they become macrophages to engulf that um, oxidative form of LDL. Um, these macrophages um, form you know, multiple uh, lipid particles, then, which are referred to as foam cells. And those are going to then kind of activate these other cytokines, these other pro-inflammatory uh, mediators, and that's going to activate your immune cells, which are going to then cause more and more damage to the endothelium. Um, and that kind of whole process is just turns into this vicious cycle where you get um, this thickening and this hardening of the arterial walls and more and more inflammation, and it just gets worse and worse. And these, um, you can see like these, they call them fatty streaks that mm-hmm. start to form um, with this, these foam cells start to build up. Yep. And this plaque formation happens, and arteries get more and more narrow. Yeah, it's kind of concerning to see the animations of it all i mean i don't mm-hmm. know if it's to scale because it seems like it could happen so quickly with with them adhering and growing right there on the the vessel um but it does take many many years but they're like we mentioned the risk factors that uh, expedite it significantly yeah so you know we know that that's kind of the long-term main concern that we're worried about is this um overall buildup of 
this atherosclerosis, which then can lead to cardiovascular events. So LDL is one of our things that we're going to monitor to kind of see uh, how well controlled someone's lipid levels are and if they're at higher risk for having an event later on in life. Because right. that's ultimately um, what we're, especially if they've never had an event, we're trying to prevent them from having one. Right. And so, of course, the concern is if this plaque breaks off and embolizes, you have issues. Um, if the if the artery completely closes, you have issues. Um, and even if it's only partially closed, you have issues uh, with angina and decreased blood flow and that sort of thing. Yep. So, um, you know, LDL is kind of what we're targeting a lot of times. But uh, so how are we going to measure? We're going to get a lipid panel. Um, now, one of the big changes, I guess, with the new guidelines um, was where they definitively um, brought in the fact that you could have non-fasting uh, samples in order to draw lipid panels from. Um, so before everyone would have to come in, they'd have to be fasting and, uh, you know, you'd have to get your blood work done. Uh, they've done multiple studies now and shown that for, you know, calculating risk for primary prevention based on lipids or establishing baseline LDLs, um, even in secondary prevention, when you're starting statin therapy, which obviously we're going to talk about statins today, but, um, you can get non-fasting samples in those patients. Um, so yes, technically speaking, fasting is still slightly more accurate. However, it's not clinically relevant enough in most cases to make enough of a difference that we don't have to, that we have to require everyone to be fasting. Right. And I guess the point is if they didn't fast, we don't have to redo it. You right. Can, you can trust the number, at least generally speaking. And it was interesting too, because I, I listened to, um, kind of the, uh, Medscape interviews that they did with some of the authors of the new guidelines. And they brought up that one of the things they were excited about with including that in the guidelines was, you know, if, if the clinician sees then and there at that visit that, you know, the person's a candidate for a statin, they can draw lipid levels right then and there mm -hmm. without having had the person come back and have that conversation about whether or not they're going to start a statin and kind of all that stuff. Um, you know, going through without having to have them come back and maybe not come back and all that jazz. So my, <laughs> you started smiling. What did I say? <laughs> Something stupid. No, I was thinking of a story. My brother told me that he, he heard about on, uh, when he was, um, in residency, you might've heard the story before too, but uh, you talk about them taking the lipid levels right there. Um, he was telling me about this doctor who <laughs> he was telling me about this doctor who, um, he, this patient went into this doctor, he was telling him the story, uh, and, he said that the doctor decided that he wanted to go ahead and draw labs. So he drew labs right there in the, in the office. And he thought it was like really strange. The doctor did it himself. Um, and he said that he drew them through his neck, like through an artery in his neck. It was very, very strange. And so um, the guy thought it was weird too. And uh, he was just sitting there wondering. But he, so he asked the doctor, he's like, do you do this to everybody? It was like a lot of blood and it was dripping down. And um, the doctor said, yeah, yeah, we, this is how we do. And so he walked out and asked the receptionist, um, and said, uh, the doctor just took my, my, um, blood levels through my neck. Is this, is this normal? Like I've never seen this before. She's like, oh yeah. Dr. Acula does that to everybody. Ah, uh, I get it. Yeah. Just, that's, just, was that like a real story that happened or yeah. is he just, that was a Dracula that joke? That was a Dracula joke. Okay. He told me that whole thing. Wow. Yeah. Now he told all of our listeners. So everybody now, got it. I am pretty sure we are, <laughs> we're set for Going off good. the air now. Ah. Uh, off to a good start. Oh, that's that's my lab draw story. Good job. I like that. I was like, where's he going with this? I couldn't hold it in. I was hoping that uh, that person went to jail or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> um, the, other, the other part of that is 
Um, if a patient has what is thought to be a genetic dyslipidemia um, or has family history um, of you know very premature ASCVD in general, so atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease to some sort of an event, then um, in that case, they do still recommend to get fasting just to be on the safe side. But for the majority of patients, not fasting is good to go. Yep. Um, so the other thing, I guess, as far as treatment options, because before they even get into the actual treatment of dyslipidemia, um, the thing that the guidelines really harped on was lifestyle management, which is important, you know, just like with, um, diabetes or with hypertension, things like that. Um, they go at length into different diet examples of what they should be eating. So fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, fish, nuts, you know, different things like that. Limit simple sugar intake, Mm -hmm. um, limit red meat consumption. Um, but they also talk extensively about exercise and, uh, you know, they recommend 40 minutes per workout of uh, moderate to vigorous aerobic activity and they recommend three to four workouts per week yeah and i mean when you look back at the risk factors hyperglycemia Mm -hmm. hypertension visceral fat obesity all of that um, can be modified by exercise and diet absolutely so we say it every time but uh, you probably should say it every time to your patients too (laughs) there you go so anything else about that before we kind of jump into good old statins? Let's jump into it. Okay. So, How do they work? I don't know. <laughs> they just they just lower they LDL. They just lower LDL somehow. It's magical. So mechanism of action. Um, statins are going to target this specific enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase. Um, that's the enzyme that's responsible for converting that HMG-CoA to uh, mevalonic acid, which is really the rate-limiting step of cholesterol synthesis. So they block that enzyme, and then cholesterol doesn't happen. Long story short, it just can't be created, as opposed to something else that prevents it from being absorbed. Um, just it's not going to make as much cholesterol. Absolutely. So... Their statins are broken down. Um, you know, we have atorvastatin, we have rosuvastatin, um, simvastatin, pravastatin, lovastatin, fluvastatin, and then patavastatin that nobody likes. And we have, you know, so we have lots of different statins available. <laughs> I don't know why I added that. I actually I, dispense that, like, um, not infrequently, and people pay, like, a lot of money for it's it. It's crazy. Yeah. I saw a person paying $100 copay for that stuff. And I saw 150 Totally yeah. useless. Yeah. Garbage. Trash, as I like to say to my PA students. <laughs> Um, I'll ask them, uh, you know, what do you guys think about such and such drug that they've heard me rant and rave about? And they're like, trash. <laughs> uh, yes, hopefully you include that on rounds. <laughs> so, Tell the doctor who's prescribing. No, it. it's trash. I told right. you my fluvastatin story Mm-mm. where just I, I had seen a doctor who just his go-to statin was fluvastatin. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember it, that. I have no I, idea why. No idea why. Hmm. But yeah, yeah. Crestor, Lipitor, Prevacol. Did you know, so, I mean, you probably heard that Lipitor is like the highest selling mm-hmm. drug of all time. Uh, apparently, in like 2018, um, it was second to hydrocodone acetaminophen in the U.S. for the amount dispensed. Wow. Can you believe that? I'd, We're coming after you, hydrocodone. Verified by like three Google sources, so I don't know if it's definitely true, but that just was outrageous to me. That's usually the, the height of our uh, research. I mean, yeah. Three Google searches and That's you get the same thing? Yeah. All the reviewing we Done. <laughs> That is a that is a clear affirmative. So if that's true, I think that's outrageous. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Anyways, not to mention the fact that hydrocodone is our <laughs> number one drug in the U.S. Right. <laughs> that's also probably outrageous. All right. So um, 
the reason I listed all those that quickly is because they, they are broken down in different categories, which hopefully we are all familiar with at this point. So we have high intensity statins, we have moderate intensity, and we have low intensity. And they are broken up by different doses as well. So for example, I'm not going to read all these, but for example, a torvastatin 40 and 80 milligrams are considered high intensity statins and doses. Um, moderate intensity would be a torva 10 and 20. And then it kind of just varies from there. But the two high intensity statins are going to be a torvastatin and rosuvastatin. Yeah. So as long as you remember that, you know that any other drug at any other dose is either moderate to low intensity. Yes. Um, and the other thing is if you ever pull up the actual guidelines um, and look at that chart that breaks it down by drug um, and what, what kind of intensity it is, it will have some of them that are bold, some of them that are not. This is just a fun fact. The ones that are bold and the reason for that um, is because the ones that are bold are, have actually been studied in outcome data trials, so studies that have looked at cardiovascular mortality, um, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, things like that. Um, those are the reason for being bold in that case. And in some cases, like a torvastatin, 40 milligrams, for example, which a lot of times we start at 40 and go to 80 or sometimes just leave them at 40, which we'll talk about. But uh, a 40 is in parentheses in that case because or has a little asterisk next to it. And it's because there's only been one outcome study that used 40 milligrams. I think it was called the ideal study, but it was actually 40 milligrams was only if they couldn't tolerate 80. So it wasn't even like the initial protocol. Um but, uh, oh, and hey, uh, I see on Instagram now that uh, it says these guys, um, I'm not sure if these guys will see my comments, but the podcast makes my morning drive more bearable. So thanks, guys. Um, thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. I could show you something to make my morning drive more bearable. I know. I certainly wouldn't want to listen to us. So I appreciate you guys, <laughs> <laughs> your support. Yeah, I tried it. It just didn't work. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> no, thank you so much. Um, and I'll use the... Uh, the Instagram handle, P-S-K-E-R-S-I-L, it looks like. I can't see nice. that far, but thank you. Appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, moderate, high, low intensity. Uh, so um, a, a big point about statins is their side effects. Generally, they are very well tolerated with a low side effect profile. I think that anytime you talk to a patient about it, that's probably the first thing you want to say. Uh, but the most common side effect, of course, we've all heard it, is going to be muscle side effects, myopathy, and very rarely severe um, condition called rhabdomyolysis. Um, rhabdomyolysis. Rhabdomyolysis. Myolysis, yeah. I like it. Um, and you're going you're gonna to see patients, man, I see this all the time. At way more con When I was in school, I did not realize how widespread the concern for that was going to be. But it's like people are really concerned about it. And not necessarily because it's happened to them, but because they've talked to somebody who it's happened to. It, it, it reminds me of how everybody freaks out about their shingles vaccine and getting their shingles vaccine, even though not too many people get shingles, but they hear about somebody who has it. And so they just will pay $200 for this vaccine, but don't want to get their free pneumonia shot. Um, this is kind of the same thing. They hear somebody who had muscle issues, and so they're really concerned for it. Uh, so we're going to talk about starting doses, and I'll, I'll talk about you know, my opinion of, of where to start based on the psyche of where the patient is mm -hmm. at at the time when you're starting that dose. Yeah, absolutely. But along with muscle pain, um, it can increase glucose, glucose levels a little bit. Um, but we would definitely say that the benefit of a statin far outweighs the risk, especially in a diabetes patient, far outweighs the risk of, um, I don't know what the word is, turning somebody, um, making them have diabetes if they're pre-diabetic or don't have diabetes. Um, if you feel like they are indicated for a statin, it still outweighs the risk. 
Um, and it is metabolized. Most of them, all of them are metabolized by the liver, so they can increase LFTs. So it would just be a monitoring parameter, something you want to keep an eye on. Yeah, and the guidelines actually do address this, which I had later on, but the uh, guidelines do address the diabetes thing specifically, where they say that the, we know the benefit outweighs the risk, so they still encourage you to push even someone who's considered pre-diabetic um, to still continue statin therapy, and they say that you no longer have to get baseline LFTs uh, as well, just kind of continuing to monitor going forward. Um, you and don't also, have to get baseline mm-hmm. LFTs? Oh, cool. Um, and then... Uh, also, uh, looks like um, Instagram handle gunnaboy.farmd says uh, that um, best pharmacy podcast and uh, said stumble upon us and that we know our stuff. So appreciate it, man. Thank I don't know you. about the latter, but uh, yeah, so, appreciate well, it. Hopefully, we try. <laughs> we, we just repeat stuff that other smart people have said. That's all we do. But um, appreciate the love. And uh, a couple things too some creatinine clearance. Did you talk about the renal no. dose adjustments? No. Um, creatinine clearance. Um, less than 30 mils per minute. You have to start at lower doses of Lovastatin, Simva, and Rasuva specifically. Um, and then if the creatinine clearance is less than 60, you have to reduce the starting dose of Pitavastatin. Um, trash. Just another reason why Pitavastatin's trash. Um, Rasuvastatin does uh, have two times the concentration as far as you know plasma concentration um, in patients of Asian descent. And so they do say that they want you to uh, start a patient of Asian descent in five milligrams doses and kind of work your way up. So that's kind of a weird caveat to receive a statin. Mm-hmm. All right. What else? Um, the other thing I didn't mention either with that chart, kind of looking at high versus moderate versus low, um, if in regards to LDL, we would expect to see with a high intensity statin an LDL reduction of more than uh, or at least equal to 50%. Um, moderate intensity, we would expect 30 to 49% reduction, f- again, from baseline. Um, low intensity, less than 30%. And this is important when you have patients who are concerned about statins. Um, when we now, With us now having goals again, and we, we're pretty sure that most of the complications down the road are linked specifically to LDL, and the benefits come from reduction in LDL. You can use other things, but none of them are even going to come close to the um, effectiveness of statins and the cost-effectiveness of statins. None right. of them. Absolutely. So... Cole did mention, uh, we can go into de- a little bit more detail about this, but starting statins off at the higher doses and then kind of working your way down. The one, uh, again, caveat to that, um, which I think we've talked about multiple times in the podcast, I, I think, I forget what we talk about. We have but, at least twice. So. But uh, the search trial um, was done, and that, that most of you have seen Simvastatin 80 milligrams. Um, if you look at the new FDA recommendations, they say that uh, they're really not even that new at this point. Um, but the FDA recommends against starting anybody at 80 milligrams or even titrating up to 80 milligrams of specifically simvastatin. Um, that was based on, again, the search trial where they compared 80 milligrams to 20. And there was no difference, statistically speaking, in um, major vascular events. Uh, however, the risk of myopathies um, was significantly higher, and even rhabdomyolysis was significantly higher with Simba 80. So because of the lack of benefit and the increased risk of adverse effects, they say if you're on 80 and you've been on 80, you can stay on 80, but they don't recommend titrating up anyone um, to 80 milligrams of simvastatin anymore or starting anyone at that high of a dose. Right. And I think we did just talk about this recently, but simvastatin is a 3 4 substrate. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are uh, max recommended doses with drug interactions uh, with some other 
drugs. We talked about amlodipine, uh, max 20 milligrams, but also amiodarone or renolazine, which just went generic, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then max 10 milligrams with verapamil and diltiazem because they're both going to affect that 3A4 as well. Have we done a uh, podcast on like stable ischemic heart disease? We like did one on her. We did something cardiovascular related. No, I don't think we ever did hmm. angina. But I remember saying angina and angina. I don't know what the difference is, but because uh, I usually say things like that. But I don't remember doing a full podcast on it. Hmm. Write that down before I forget. Right. We're we'll it do down. that one next we'll, time. We'll do it in the next one. Yes, we have a topic, everybody. Awesome. Renolazine. That's how that's how our meetings go. By the way, <laughs> that's literally an insight of what our meetings are like before podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. Any other interactions you want to just talk about and bring up? Uh, you, atorvastatin, um, also three or four substrate. So you'd want to avoid it with cyclosporin. And it also has some max dosing. So 20 milligrams with clarithromycin, itraconazole, or ritonavir, um, depending on the situation. If it's a short course, you might even consider just holding it if they're on a higher dose, like 80 milligrams of atorva, um, if it's just an antibiotic situation. Also, restuvastatin, still 3A4, but also 2C9. You want to max them at 5 milligrams with cyclosporin. Yeah. Cool. All right. So we'll go into the actual treatment options and whatnot but um i guess we'll just touch on the starting dose of statin so um if you look at most of especially with torvastatin for example um, because that's the one we have the most outcome data with if you look at a torvastatin the 80 milligrams is always what's studied in the trials except for that one ideal study that looked at 40 um however a lot of times in clinical practice people kind of start at 40 milligrams just because we have this you know, sort of uh, instinct to titrate up to start low, go slow. Exactly. Right? So, but these aren't beta blockers. So we, we are, we want to make sure that we are kind of optimizing the therapy as well as we can. And there may be evidence for this. I don't know, but I know my personal opinion on the matter is it is a lot easier. It seems to be a lot easier in my experience to start someone on 80 milligrams of a torostatin. And if they do have myalgias, then, um, you know, any kind of signs of myopathy, whatever, then you can tell them, okay, well, in that case, we're going to cut your dose in half. We're going to go way down and we're going to try it, retry it. And that a lot of times will take care of the problem um, versus having them on a statin. They're not having side effects, but because there is so much information about these um, myopathies that may develop from statins, if I tell you, okay, I know you've been fine, but now I'm going to double your dose for right. no necessarily, in their mind, no good reason other than just you know risk reduction. Right, especially because if they say, uh, well, my cholesterol numbers are fine, mm-hmm. why do you want to take me from 20 to 40 or from 40 to 80 or whatever, then um, it's a lot easier to say, hey, you're, you're having some issues, let's cut down. Yeah. Um, but you know, some people may take a different approach. That's okay. You want to know your patient population. For example, what I was talking about before, if you have a patient that comes in and their cholesterol is high and they're concerned about their cholesterol and they really want to get it down, boom, easy atorva 80 patient. Uh, but if you have someone who clearly is he- is very hesitant or does not want to start a statin or just because they're super concerned, they had their friend who had um, myalgias and now he can't exercise or is having trouble walking or something like that because it was so severe, whether that was statin related or not, that's what they're thinking. Um, and so psychologically for them, it might just make more sense to start low and go slow to make them feel more comfortable. Um, 
So you got to know your patient population and, and just kind of play it by ear. But one of those trials, for example, I'm um, looking at Atorva 80 is the TNT trial, which I think we talked we've talked about previously. But mm-hmm. Atorva 80 versus 10 um, in patients with stable coronary artery disease and hyperlipidemia, and uh, the higher dose was associated with greater reduction in um, cardiovascular mortality, cardiovascular disease mortality, and a non-fatal MRI that was not related to procedures. So there's a good example of its mortality benefit. Yeah. Okay, so do you want to start with going through some of the treatment options? We should have probably talked about this before we were recording, but it's fine. Non-statin um, treatment options. Going through non-statin, we're actually going through like the algorithms and talking about the non-statins as we go. Yeah, we do algorithms. Okay, all right. You guys feel like you're a part of the, uh, they're, they're, the prep? A part the prep of the process. Well. Yeah. <laughs> the whole process. They see how the sausage is made. Something like that. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about secondary prevention first. That's kind of the first subject that the guidelines touch on. Um, So patients with clinical ASCVD, um, and they give a list of what they consider a major ASCVD event. Um, So specifically they mention um, acute coronary syndrome within the last 12 months. Uh, So that would be, you know, STEMI, non-STEMI, unstable antenna. That's an umbrella term too in and of itself. Um, Patient, obviously with a history of MI, um, history of ischemic stroke, um, or a patient with peripheral arterial disease. You'll notice not hemorrhagic stroke. Yes. Hemorrhagic stroke, um, we could potentially harm them if they've used uh, a statin, or if we add in a statin after they've had a hemorrhagic stroke, we right. could increase their chances of having another one. That right. was in the uh, SPARKLE trial. Yep. Um, the other thing that they mention is um, not only, you know, that, that first little box puts them in that algorithm of, you know, somebody's had ASCVD or has clinical ASCVD. Um, the other thing they want you to consider is patients that are uh, high risk for a second event. Um, they list several different things, but specifically saying uh, age equal than or equal to or greater than 65. Uh, if a patient has had a history of a cabbage or a PCI, so, you know, again, if they've had some sort of ACS and they've had one of those procedures done, patient that has diabetes, a uh, patient whose LDL is above 100, a patient who has hypertension, is a current smoker, has CKD, or has some sort of like a genetic predisposition to um, hypercholesterolemia, so like familial. They would also be considered high risk. So any of those patients, they are um, going to be not only, you know, a candidate for a statin, but um, as we'll see from the algorithm, a candidate for a high-intensity statin because they are at high risk for a second event. And you want to meet goals. Is mm-hmm. that in these patients? Yes. Yeah. So if a patient has clinical ASCVD, um, obviously the first thing we encourage them is healthy lifestyle. And then we kind of separate it based on whether or not they're at very high risk or not very high risk. So, yes. um, not, and if, in, in, if this is like too hard to kind of visualize as we're talking through, I do encourage you to pull the guidelines. You can see these nice, awesome algorithms that are all laid out and probably way easier to read for those of you who are visual and not auditory learners. Um, so if someone is not at very high risk, they don't have any of the things on that chart, which a lot of times these patients will, um, but they don't have any, any of those different criteria, then you break it down by age group. So 75 is kind of the cutoff. So 75 or younger, um, they do automatically get a high intensity statin. And then, um, if that's not tolerated, you can go to moderate intensity and your goal with those patients is less than 70, um, 
to be on, you know, a statin. If it's, if you do not reach 70, then for your LDL, I should say, um, then you would consider adding secondary classes. And we'll talk about these, but specifically azetamibe um, or, um, in, in this case, just azetamibe is what they really recommend um, in this patient because they're not at very high risk. And then if a patient is greater than 75, um, they want you to initiate a moderate or possibly a high-intensity statin, um, but the level of evidence isn't quite as um, clear and concise as it is for patients who are younger than 75. Yeah, the data we have is mostly with moderate, moderate intensity. Moderate intensity. Yeah. So like um, pravastatin with a PROSPER trial. Yeah, but we haven't really seen um, any adverse outcomes from that age group, so the assumption is that the high intensity would still be okay, but, um, you know, not a lot of data there. Yes. So... If a patient, though, is considered to be at high risk, so they have had ASCVD, they also have one of the um, criteria from that list that puts them at high risk. Again, we start at high intensity or a maximally tolerated statin. Um, and then from there, if their LDL is not less than 70, um, then we would consider azetamibe and then move on to a PCSK9 inhibitor as mm -hmm. well. Um, they could have all three um, in order to reach that goal of less than 70. Right. Um, and we'll talk kind of about uh, azetamide, and I guess we can, let's bring up azetamide now, since yeah. we've already mentioned it twice. Um, so Zetia, brand name, azetamide is the generic name. Um, basically, this is going to inhibit the absorption of cholesterol. Um, this works at something called the brush border of the small intestine to do so, and it's kind of its own unique class of cholesterol-lowering agents. Um, adverse effects pretty mild. I mean, diarrhea, some, some chances of like, um, upper respiratory infection, sinusitis, things like that. Um, and then, uh, myalgias can be, uh, a concern as well, especially when you're adding it to a, a statin. Um, these kind of got their claim to fame, if you will, from the improve it trial, um, which did include several patients that had over 18,000, um, that had some sort of a recent ACS and, uh, they were looking at it in combination with uh, simvastatin because originally this was for the drug Vitorin, which right. is the fixed combination. Um, and they were looking at simvastatin by itself versus simvastatin plus azetamide. Um, and what they saw is that, because originally the outcome data wasn't good, <laughs> they, they had planned for the, the study to last five years, and they were like, oh, shoot, we don't see a statistical difference, but it's trending, so they continued the study on. <laughs> and uh, so it ended up going seven years. And they did find a difference um, in the primary outcome. So looking at compositive cardiovascular mortality, um, major cardiovascular events, non-fatal stroke, um, so you know, non-fatal MI, things like that. Um, and they did find a statistical difference. The number needed to treat was 50. But again, it took seven years of treating with azetamide plus a moderate intensity statin in order to see that. So one of the questions is, you know, are we going to see the same exact uh, you know, results that we saw improve it if we were to start with like a Torva 80 and then add on the Zenamide. Right. Um, because some of the moderate intensity anyway. Yeah. And I mean, you have to do a cost-benefit analysis because um, Vitorin's not cheap. That's if you want to use some statin, but say they're on a high intensity already, which mm -hmm. is what the guidelines recommend. Then you're adding on Zetia. Um, it's not super expensive anymore, but it's still not as cheap as most of the statins. Uh, and how much is it going to help? I think it's important to note that um, Zetia hasn't been studied as monotherapy, even though it's frequently used as monotherapy in patients who, for whatever reason, aren't on a statin, couldn't tolerate it, didn't want it. Um, hasn't been studied that way. So it, 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 I think this trial 
demonstrates how significant the reduction in events can be with even just a moderate intensity statin versus these other options. Uh, they're out there and they can help, just much less effective. Yeah, and, and re realistically, the reason why they kind of extrapolate the data from the IMPROVE-IT trial is because we do have data indicating that lower LDLs um, do seem to right. so reduce cardiovascular events. All about lower LDLs. Um, so that's why we kind of brought the LDL goals back into um, the the curriculum, if you will. <laughs> and uh, the new guidelines emphasize, you know, looking at the goals again. And so they've they've kind of just used Zetia because we do have some data and we also know that it lowers um, LDL. So right. that's really the main focus. Right. But it's also why they say to use that instead of PCSK9s because a lot of the data with the lower LDLs is with PCSK9s, but the cost. Yeah, the cost. The cost, though. It's always there with these injectables. Um, so I guess let's mention, if you're like, what the heck is a PCSK9? Um, let's do it. It is a, uh, injectable medication. So we have, um, brand names, we have Prilent and we have Repatha. Um, I believe there's, they haven't had a third one approved to my knowledge. I don't think. Not that I'm aware of. But, um, I think they are working on a couple others if I remember correctly, but those are the two that have all the data. Um, w what they are doing is they are inhibiting that, uh, enzyme, that PCSK9, um, which is the enzyme that's responsible for the breakdown of LDL receptors. Um, so again, these LDL receptors are there to kind of clear out that circulating LDL from the blood. So if you break down these receptors, there's less of them to, uh, get this, you know, these L this LDL out of the blood. And so that just kind of formulates, I mean, the LDL levels go up. So you reduce that PCSK9, more LDL receptors are available, clears the LDL faster, lower that number. Yep. And it is, they are generally well tolerated, even though they're expensive. Injection site reactions, of course, are going to be the most common. Um, and also some, some various things like back pain with Repatha can apparently happen. Uh, but the one of the big trials where they get this recommendation of if it's still greater than 70 on the maximal tolerated statin, you can add on a PCSK9 is from the four-year trial with Repatha, um, looking at that specific group with patients who are on maximal tolerated statin, LDL over 70, and they added this on, lowered it significantly. Um, I mean, I can't remember what the lowest LDL was, but it was like in the... 40s or something I like think that. it was I was gonna say I think it was even lower it might have, in some been, cases. Like it might have been like the 20s or, or teens even yeah um but they didn't but yeah. see increased adverse reactions and they did see a reduction in major cardiovascular events um and the other thing is too and, and the reason why um you get the recommendation differs slightly from where we see if someone is has ASCVD but they have a uh, they do not have a risk for a secondary event or they're not at high risk. Um, the reason they just go simvastatin or I mean sorry statins plus azetamide and then they don't really talk about PCSK9s versus the population who are at risk for a secondary event they include those PCSK9 inhibitors in there. Um, the reason for that is because so like the Odyssey outcome study which was the prevalent um, cardiovascular outcomes they saw more benefit in that high risk group than they did in the you know the the other less risk group and so that's really why they kind of formulated the guidelines in that specific way um, because in that case we may actually need triple therapy in those patients to fully reduce the risk right um, and since we're here we'll just mention a couple others just very briefly but um, other non-statin therapies that you may run into obviously is like phenofibrate um, gemfibrazole those uh, are considered the, the fibrate family um, these are going to basically be focusing on like triglycerides. Um, however, they can potentially lead to an increase 
and LDL over time. So realistically speaking, they should not be added to uh, statins unless you just are really needing something for triglycerides. And we got something a little bit better for you that we can use now. Um, so we'll talk about that towards the end. But um, really, phenofibrate and uh, gemfibrozole probably have very limited roles at this point. Yeah. Um, especially if you're adding to a statin, you really run the risk of increased myopathies, um, really with gemfibrozole um, especially. And it's just not any... Not all that great. Yeah, and I and it is reasonable that a patient could be uh, statins will lower triglycerides, but they do focus on LDL. But they, they do have significant lowering of triglycerides. But there are patients who are on maximally tolerated statins, low LDLs, and for some reason their triglycerides just keep going up. Um, there's a debate over when you actually need to treat that. I think a lot of people say um, when it's around 500 or so, even though greater than 50 or greater than 150 is considered um, high triglycerides. Really, it's around that 500 mark where you might consider treating, but there are those patients who just bump way up there, even though their LDL is low. So it's reasonable to consider something to lower it, but like you said, we, we have some other things. All right. Um, the other one is niacin. Um, niacin's trash, I'll say yeah, it. It's, it's um, all not a favor. Yeah, there's there was some study that they had done a long time ago. I want to say it was like in the 90s um, with niacin immediate release that had some outcome data. I can't for the life of me remember what it's called, but um, comparatively to statin therapy, it's not even close. And uh, there's no good data with niacin ER as far as outcome data. And there was a meta-analysis, I think it was published this year, I want to say in like late April, um, that kind of showed that we really just have not a lot of use for niacin at this point. Yeah, and it also is not very well tolerated. A lot of patients complain of the flushing, and mm -hmm. um, it can also exacerbate other conditions like gout and um, cause hypotension, things like that, hyperglycemia. Yeah, make your sugar go up, which is perfect. Yep. Um, so niacin, trash. Um, bile acid sequestrants we potentially could use still, and we can talk about that later, but um, uh, basically you're just trying to... Um, form this complex uh, with the cholesterol and, and get it to be excreted in the feces. Um, but you don't want to use these in triglycerides if they're over 300. Um, and then you also have to run the risk of constipation, abdominal cramping and pain and gas and all those other fun uh, side effects. So yeah. not very useful either. Not, not very well taught. I do see these a fair amount actually, but um, the wall cost specifically, they have yeah. to take so much of mm -hmm. it. It's crazy. And they're not small pills either. Right. So it's, it's realistically speaking for most patients, we go statins, um, and then we need a second agent, we would go zinamide, and then for a third agent, in some cases, we can look at PCSK9 inhibitors if they can afford it. Right. And, so, and I mean, just try to convince your patients to use statins. I know sometimes it's hard, but just got to talk them into it. Yeah. Use that motivate, motivational interview. Did, did we mention hydrophilic versus lipophilic statins? No. Okay. So I'll mention that real quick before I forget. Um, so besides cutting the dose in half for statins who come to you and they're like, hey, I got, you know, myalgias, myopathies, whatever, with uh, statin therapy. I don't want to be on this anymore. Um, if you're on a torvastatin, for instance, um, you can consider switching them to a hydrophilic statin. Um, the lipophilic statins, which are going to be all of them except for a Torva, uh, I'm sorry, um, Resuvastatin and mm -hmm. Pravastatin. Those mm -hmm. are our hy um, hydrophilic statins. Um, the lipophilic statins are going to uh, have much higher volumes of distribution, so you're going to get into the tissue a lot more readily um, and have a higher risk for those myopathies and myalgias. So if you're having a patient that's experiencing that, then you can switch them over to Pravastatin or Resuvastatin, and hopefully some of that uh, will go away. Yeah, and um, Lavalo, the Patavastatin, is... Um 
marketed as as being like the the least likely to cause maladies. That's why people. That's why you'll see it usually is they've tried multiple other things. I don't know. It is expensive and it is trash. But I guess before moving on to to like finafibrate or something, yeah, maybe you had to. If you just well, had, if you had a patient who was refusing the other things, and it makes sense because it's a moderate intensity to right. low intensity right. statin. So of course it's not going to cause. So if you're getting some LDL lowering from it, that would be more significant than something else, and they're willing to do it. I guess yeah. you know, whatever. All right, so. Now let's talk about patients, you know, who come in and you're just looking at their LDL by itself. So, you know, if the patient obviously has had some sort of an event, they have ASCVD, those patients get a statin right off the bat. Um, now, if you have a patient who is 20 to 75 years old um, and their LDL is 190 at baseline, you get their lipids back, you see 190 or higher, um, they're automatically going to be a uh, candidate for a maximally tolerated statin. Um so at that point, you don't even really need to do like an ASCVD risk or anything like that. Um, they're going to be a candidate. Um, and then for, again, patients 20 to 75 years old, instead of less than 70, like we see with our um, high-risk patients and patients that have ASCVD, um, these are patients who um, we give a little bit more of leeway to. So we say LDL is less than 100 in that case. Um, and we still can add ezetimibe to these patients if we are not getting to 100 milligrams per deciliter of the LDL with just a statin alone. But, um, you know, again, make sure you've maxed out the statin if possible um, before adding on the ezetimibe, but that we can use that. But 70 for patients who are have ASCVD with high risk, 100 in these patients um, for LDL goal levels. Yep. Um, and then, you know, again, uh, some of the odyssey outcomes from the PCSK9 inhibitors, things like that. Um, we kind of save those for a patient that has these this severe hypercholesterolemia um, if it's a, a genetic um, factor, so heterozygous familial. Um, we would consider adding a PCSK9 inhibitor if the LDL is still above 100. Um, and you have them on a zetamine and a statin, that's when we can consider that, just like we would with the high-risk ASCVD patients. Right. And diabetes kind of changes things a little bit. So if they're 40 to 75 with diabetes, you definitely want to get them on a moderate-intensity statin, regardless of what their LDL is. Um, and uh, if they have a high ACVD risk, you'd want to use a high-intensity, but really it's totally fine to just go to high-intensity at that point as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you get a patient who's 40 to 75 years old, and you don't even have to run, you know, the 10-year ASCVD risk for those patients. You can automatically just safely say a tour of a 10. Um, and that was based on the CARDS trial, uh, which was a primary prevention study that used in, in diabetes patients. Um, and we saw a mortality benefit there. So that's why um, we kind of get that recommendation. But if a patient also has, like Cole said, risk factors, um, specifically ASCVD, ASCVD above 20, then we're going to definitely consider them for high-intensity statin plus even uh, adding on a mm -hmm. But We're looking for at least a 50% reduction in LDL. Yes. Um, the other thing with diabetes, too, is, you know, as we mentioned 40 to 75 years old, but we also have um, information now with patients who are 20 to 39. Um, and if they have diabetes plus they have what the guidelines call diabetes-specific risk enhancers, um, <laughs> then you can consider adding statin therapy in those patients as well, so 20 to 39-year-olds. Um, and this is something that um, I, I believe is fairly new, you know, because we used to always kind of say 40 to 75 was that sweep spot for age range. But diabetes-specific risk enhancers is uh, someone who's had um, greater than 10 years of having type 2 diabetes um, or greater than 20 years of having type 1 
um, someone that has albuminuria, so greater than 30 micrograms, and uh, if their GFR is less than 60, or if they have other signs of like um, uh, microvascular complications, so retinopathy, uh, neuropathy, um, if their ABI is less than 0.9, things like that. Those are all um, listed in the guidelines as being diabetes-specific risk enhancers. So you can consider patients in that age group if they have diabetes and have one of those other factors. All right. What do you want to talk about now, Cole? That's pretty much statins right there. Isn't it? Um, well, the other thing is, um, and we've talked about this multiple times, but the ASCVD risk calculator, um, we have uh, an app for it. It was updated in 2018. Um, I almost said 2008. <laughs> First one wasn't even out then. Um, 2018, so now it's called the ASCVD Risk Estimator Plus. Um, and mm. that one, uh, and I can put 5,000. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I'll put the, uh, the link in the show notes. But um, basically what they've added on now is uh, a patient's use of st- um, whether or not they're using statin or aspirin therapy, which now with all this aspirin nonsense, I wonder, yeah. we, we may need to switch that up again too. Yeah. Hmm. So that's going to be interesting. But uh, you can download the uh, app for free. Um, I definitely from the Apple Store. Um, I, I'm assuming Google. Sure. Or is it Google yeah. Play. Who, I don't know. Yeah, who those of you that? who use those kind of phones, <laughs> uh, they'll fill me. I'm sure it's available though. My wife does. So. Does she? Oh, yeah. what's she thinking? She's not. An so Apple you know, person. I guess you, you know, love her enough to get her a real phone, huh? That's unfortunate. Sorry, she refuses. Anna. I'd buy it for her. I don't know. <laughs> I need to force it on her. Yeah, you might need to step in and really. Intervene. Intervene there before she makes any more horrible decisions. But um, there are some limitations, obviously, to this risk assessment, these risk calculators. Um, one uh, big one is age. You know, we have you list out an age in the in the risk calculator, but not all 70-year-olds look the same. Right. Um, you know, like, for example, my, my father-in-law is 66, I think, and I'm pretty sure he could whoop me in, like, you know, a 5K. <laughs> <laughs> so I think uh, it really just depends um, on the patient. So you can't, it's hard to say, oh, this guy's uh, 70 or 80 years old. And, right. You know, it, you can't really adjust for individualism in there. So it, it's an estimate, and, you know, if, if they're... ACVD risk is like seven point four, and you're like, oh shoot, not gonna not gonna do this high intensity statin in you because it's not high enough. You can you can still do it. It's it's a, an estimate, so you still know your patient, you know the risk factors, you know what they're doing lifestyle wise too. So we didn't really talk about pediatric patients age zero to nineteen. Um, the the recommendations are just lifestyle to prevent and reduce ACVD risk over time, um, and not necessarily starting statin in most situations. Uh, so if you know that the patient is, you know, making efforts to have a healthy lifestyle and reduce their LDL, um, then it might not be as significant if you have somebody with a moderate to high risk, generally speaking. Yeah. And, you know, the ASCVD risk really comes into play with primary prevention because I think that's also some confusion. We, we right, have right. like those tables listed for what enhances someone's risk in secondary um, prevention. So this, when we think of ASCVD, we're thinking primary prevention and not necessarily in patients that have elevated LDLs. So these are patients who are coming in and, you know, because if they have a LDL of 190, which a lot of like our genetic predispositions are kids, things like that, that have familial, um, hypercholesterolemia, those are going to have those higher LDLs. They're automatically getting statins right. and going from there. So these are patients who have never had an event. They don't necessarily have high LDL, but they have some sort of other 
you know, hypertension, diabetes, things like that. And we are using the CVD risk assessment in that case to see um, what their risk is of having their first event. Right. Because if it's secondary prevention, they already have clinical ASCVD. Yes. So there's no reason to calculate what the risk of that is. It's they already had it. It's 100%. <laughs> it's already, it's already, already happened. I can tell you. You know, I guess, you know, there might, they might come up with a calculator for a second a second event but i don't know yeah. who's going to do that you're still going to you're still going to give them mine. you're going to give them the highest therapy. thing you're going to do the best you can at that point anyway yeah so one thing that's different in the guidelines so 2013 when you were talking about you know the ASCVD risk they kind of had a cutoff as 7.5% or more um, is whether or not their 10-year risk was high enough to start statin or encourage patients to be on statin therapy. Um, where it's a little bit different now is they have multiple risk categories. So they say someone is at low risk if you're less than 5, you're borderline risk if you're 5 to less than 7.5. And now they take 7.5 all the way up to 20, and they say that you are at intermediate risk. And then 20 or higher, you are considered high risk, and it puts you in a whole different treatment group. Yep. And that's that's without diabetes, without high LDL, just an ASCVD risk. Yes, starting a statin. So if their if their LDL is good, if it's seventy to if it's, less than one ninety, yeah. you would you would want to do an ASCVD risk to calculate and see now if it's what they if it's sixty, are you still doing that risk? I mean, their risk just might not be high enough. But say they have all the other factors, they're smoking and stuff. Are you you still doing it? So technically, according to the guidelines, they list specifically seventy to to one ninety. Okay, so um, that's that's I got you. But I'm I mean I would say we if their LDL is sixty and they're not on any statin therapy, I would be surprised if we would run into patients like that. They may just be like an anomaly. Right. But um, the guidelines do specifically give the the range of seventy to one ninety. Yep. Um, and they also are saying you know this. They address patients zero to nineteen and also twenty to thirty nine for primary prevention. Um, but you know, we're when we talk about these uh, low risk, borderline risk, intermediate, and high risk. Um, we're talking about patients forty to seventy five. Yeah. So yeah. that range with LDL seventy to one ninety. So we're all on the same page. Again, like Cole said, no diabetes, no previous ASCVD. This is pr- purely primary prevention. Um, if they have a low risk, you are so less than five. You're just emphasizing lifestyle management. You're not giving them a statin. Um, five to 7.5, uh, and which is borderline risk, then you would want to assess whether or not they have what they call risk enhancers. And we've already talked about a lot of those, um, but they kind of go in more detail in this primary prevention. So patients that have like family history, um, again, CKD, uh, patients that um, have, you know, for our female patients, patients that have history of like preeclampsia or um, premature menopause, um, any kind of like inflammatory diseases. So like our rheumatoid arthritis or our psoriasis, um, HIV, things like that. Um, those are ones that, uh, we would consider having higher, um, risk enhancers and they use that specific terminology. Um, if they have high risk in, or a uh, high risk enhancer, um, for having one of these ASCVD events later in life, then we would potentially have a discussion about starting a moderate intensity statin if they're that borderline risk. And then from there, we kind of go up. So 7.5 to 20, um, we're a lot more comfortable um, trying to start a moderate intensity statin. Again, the guidelines say to encourage the patient to kind of be um, in the loop and, and be a part of that discussion. But they do want a moderate intensity statin, so lowering LDL by 30 to 49%, so moderate intensity. Um, and then if you're above 20, automatic high intensity or maximally tolerated intensity. Right. 
And remember, we're always emphasizing lifestyle modification at every visit, even if they're on statins. I like to think, you know, smoking, they say it takes seven quit attempts before they're going to quit. Uh, I bet Little Debbie's take a similar amount of quit attempts before they're going to quit Little Debbie's as well. So, Talking about the cakes? Yeah, the, the cakes and the chips. Is this you know. coming from personal experience? But yeah, and just, you know. They are delicious. My patients, you know, their, their A1C goes up, and it's like, hey, what are we going to do about your diet? And they're like, really, my what? I really like my diet, though. Yeah, my diet's pretty cool. I'm like, all right, well, we'll try again next time. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that the guidelines really talked on um, a lot is um, if a patient is in that intermediate risk, so you're having the conversation like they would potentially be a candidate for moderate intensity, um, but maybe they're resistant. Um, there is another test that you can get done um, depending on if your facility offers this, um, but something called the coronary artery calcium score or CAC score. Um, if it comes back as zero, um, you know, and it, it goes from um, different breakdown of like zero or one to 99 um, and then a hundred or more, you know, that kind of basically is another way of calculating risk and things like that. Um, but if you're, if your CAC score is zero and, you know, so if, for instance, a patient is uh, reluctant to starting therapy or, you know, maybe they've had adverse effects and now they don't want to restart a statin um, patients that are, you know, maybe, older 55 to 80 years old are the ones of the guidelines risk or uh, list um, as far as age groups and, and you're really on the fence if they get a um, coronary arterial calcium score of zero the guidelines say you're probably better um, just telling them lifestyle management instead of starting a statin but if you start going into the the 1 to 99 score especially 100 or more um, they're probably better off um, starting a statin to prevent that ASCVD risk. So it's just another way of kind of um, helping clinicians make that decision if there's some resistance and pushback there. Right. It's, it's mainly a tool because you can, you can, you know that they're, they are either indicated or not before doing that. It's really a tool for the patients just to show them, Hey, you have this, this buildup and this is why your risk is increased. Yeah. So I guess the last thing we'll talk about, because we've been going for almost an hour now, <laughs> um, Time flies. is uh, elevated triglycerides. So we mentioned fibrates, um, but there's some new study uh, that has come out in uh, New England Journal of Medicine in, uh, this year. Um, this is where we, we've, we've been trying to find a study that proves fish oil, right, is trying su- for a long super time. effective. And people say it's a cure-all and it does all these great things. Um, we've known that it can help with triglycerides. Some guidelines were saying to use it in patients who have uh, triglycerides over 500. Some of them were saying um, that we can use it in patients that have um, triglycerides over 1,000 to you know, reduce the risk of like pancreatitis, things like that. Um, but the Reduce It trial came out, and what it did is they took patients who were on statin therapy already and still had a triglyceride level that was either 135 to 499, um, and they gave them a purified form of, and I guess an ultra purified form of uh, fish oil, um, the EPA, that's called um, Icosapentethyl, and it's brand name Vesepa. So it's that specific formulation. It's not um, any of the others that are available, like Lavaza or any of those. Um, so they gave the patients the Icosapentethyl, and uh, again, these patients were already on statin therapy, so they added it on, um, or they gave them placebo. And what the composite outcome they were looking for was um, 
cardiovascular death plus non-fatal MI or non-fatal stroke um, or coronary revascularization, unstable angina, kind of all of those things lumped into one composite. And they got a statistically reduced um, instance of those events. So number needed to treat was only 21. That's pretty good. So it's one of the first uh, studies with um, fish oil that we have that really proves that it's beneficial. Yeah, a couple things to note about that. So I mentioned people, you know, it's controversial whether to treat if triglycerides are under 500. So he mentioned those were 135 to 499. So this was a regularly elevated uh, triglyceride level that they were treating in. And this was also secondary prevention, right? These patients had already had established um, atherosclerotic, or I guess they didn't have ASCVD. So I guess they just had coronary artery disease, but they had another risk factor. So mm-hmm. it's still primary prevention. Yes. Uh, but it did slightly increase risk for AFib or a flutter. Might be something to consider in a patient with um, AFib that might not be well controlled. Also, slight uh, increased risk. Well, I guess no increased risk for bleeding because the p-value wasn't less than five, so didn't increase risk for bleeding. But there's um, uh, pathophysiologically there's a concern for that. Yeah, um, and I'm looking real quick because I want to make sure it was primary um, prevention. I, th- I want to say, um, so yeah, it, it actually was secondary because it had if they had prior MI, um, carotid artery disease, peripheral arterial disease, so it was so the whole thing was yeah. secondary. Okay, good. Yeah, so yeah, this is secondary prevention adding on to a step. I said yeah without even like I was like yeah yeah mm-hmm. sounds right sounds good good job Cole. I, I think we do that a lot. When yeah, we, we say probably stuff. do. We we both probably say wrong things. We're like yeah, the other, sounds one, good. the other one agrees. And then there's people yelling at their car stereo. Idiots! You idiots! morons uh, we already um we already mentioned uh the diabetes risk um because we'll kind of close on um adverse effects but they did mention um listed several different adverse effects to kind of address concerns diabetes was the big one um and they said that a patient with high diabetes risk um or a patient with um, new onset diabetes should um still receive statin therapy if it's needed um because of the positive net benefit um, and they say that, you know, if if you are giving a patient um, one of these statins um, looking for higher risk um, would be like a BMI of greater than 30, fasting blood sugars greater than 100, um, a- A1C greater than 60. So, you know, metabolic syndrome or prediabetes or things to watch out for to be that may put them at higher risk. So maybe a good uh, emphasis on lifestyle management opportunity as well. Um and the last thing I'll touch on is because if, if you read the guidelines, um, they are very hesitant um, to say PCSK9 inhibitors, and they have several caveats where they talk about um, the level of value, um, basically looking at like the quality adjusted life years that are gained from a PCSK9 inhibitor um, compared to their their price. Oh, yeah. um, and they say that they're basically low value um, because of how expensive they were. Since those guidelines have been published, um, so in October, uh, Amgen actually re- announced that uh, Repatha was going to be reduced by 60%. Um, and then after the guidelines were published, uh, Sanofi did the same thing with uh, Prolulent. So um, Prolulent was also reduced by 60% to kind of match um, Amgen's move. So they have come down a lot. Uh, however, they still have a long way to go before yeah. they're cost-effective. Um, and uh, so the guidelines may update that whenever they update their stuff, but um, kind of be aware of that, that if you're reading them, there has been some changes in the cost. And I think it'll be good to mention that coenzyme Q10 or CoQ10 is not recommended to prevent myalgias yes. associated with statins. Um, I, I had seen it thrown around a lot, even with docs um, and, and patients, of course, and you see the 
the Qnall Q10 commercials with that RPH guy who seems like he's in good shape. Who 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 recommends CoQ10? Um, not recommended. One pharmacist recommended. Right. But no one asked me. That being said, I mean it's it's a very psychological thing for some people. If if CoQ10 is what's going to get them to take their statin, whatever they yeah. can go buy the CoQ10. It's safe, but um, it doesn't necessarily, or as far as we know, it does not reduce the risk for myalgias. Right. Anything yeah. else? Last thing I have is that we did do an angina and STEMI podcast. It was episode 25. Hmm. Maybe it's been long enough where we'll cut <laughs> that part out. Forget. And we'll have <laughs> forgotten we can redo it. Yeah. Somebody, you guys need to let us know uh, if we're about to accidentally redo an episode. Somebody needs to shoot us an email because it's going to happen. I feel like it's going to have to happen. Yeah. <laughs> There's just, very limited things we can talk about. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, episode 25, Angina and STEMI. And I, I think that that's what's still written on our board over here. Yeah, STEMI is for sure. Okay, so it was Angina was that same episode. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and we uh, we got an email from one of our listeners saying a, uh, a whole list of basically um, things that are confusing. So, yeah. like all the different deltiazem yeah. uh, formulations and when to pick which one over which and how do you tell them apart. Um Things like uh, which potassium or, you know, potassium chloride to use and what's the difference between all of them, whether it's right. ghost tablet or, you know, whatever. And uh, so. And also some good examples of things that don't really matter, like um, different brands of ProAir or different salt forms of doxycycline. Yeah. Uh, things that people wonder about. And I wonder about myself. I think that'd be a fun one to research. Yes, so. we'll do. And we'll actually put in some research in that if we can't answer them off the top of our head or yeah. make sure that we're correct. Well, there's multiple that I looked at that I was like, oh yeah, I don't know why. I don't know what the difference is. So I'll mm. definitely have to look into it. Don't admit more. that. You're going to act like we're smart. All right. I forgot. It's the Come facade. On. So you got to keep the facade up. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks so much for listening. Um, we really appreciate all the support. And uh, the emails and the comments and messages on Instagram and things like that are, are awesome. Definitely means a lot to us. Um, so thank you so much for the support. Please let us know if we can do anything to improve um, or cover certain topics you want to hear. Uh, please send us an email or message us on social media. Um, we're more than happy to um, take all considerations, and we'll do our best to um, do episodes like that. But thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next time. Later.